This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comment. I am so excited about today's episode. It's all about comedy. There's a lot going on in the comedy world today that's making headlines, and Mark Breslin, legendary Canadian comedy figure, is one of the best people to weigh in on it all. No stones unturned, we're going to talk about everything. Breslin is the co-founder of the Yuck Yucks chain of comedy clubs and has helped launch the careers of some of the top comedy figures in the English-speaking world. Very pleased to welcome him to the podcast. Mark, hello. Hello to you too. Great to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, maybe you should say that at the end of the podcast. <laughs> I, I was reading about Yuck Yucks in 1976, the year you co-founded <laughs> that, 45 years ago. Wow, hats off to you, sir. Thank you. Well, I was four, but I was uh, precocious. <laughs> 1976. I think a lot of things that maybe we'll talk about on this podcast is maybe how things have changed, you know, in the past 45 years. I mean, I, I assume it's fair to say there's been a lot of things changing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. There's been a lot of things changed, but you know, I've always liked the, the French uh, maxim, the more things change, the more they are the same. Mm. Um, some of the things that are happening now in, in terms of not the comedy itself, but people's reaction to comedy um, seems like it's completely new, but actually I'll, I'll, I'll show you that um, it's just things that have happened over the years in a different guise, in a different face. Right. Oh, that'll be really interesting stuff to get into. I know I wanted to talk to you about Norm Macdonald, and I thought there's no great place to put it in the podcast uh, to talk about the unfortunate news, of course, loss of such a figure. Uh, Norm Macdonald, you've spoken about him and his career. I mean, what have you been saying when when people ask you what was Norm like? Well, <clears throat> he was a sphinx-like creature. Um, it didn't surprise me that he had cancer for nine years and told no one. Hmm. That was exactly in the way that Norm operated in so many ways. His personal life was very much his personal life, and he kept it personal. Um, and if you think about it, um, of all the big stars that you can think of, Norm was rarely in the tabloids. Rarely did you hear about him uh, and anything to do with his personal life or anything about that. Um, he loved his work. His work was paramount. And the reason that he didn't tell anybody about the cancer, um, I think, is because he didn't want that to get in the way of the way people appreciated his work. Huh. Uh, because, if you know, if you see somebody and they're being funny and you know that they're possibly dying, it completely changes the way that you look at, at their work. And I think he didn't want that, and that's why he kept it so quiet. He loved his work. He is, his work was paramount to him, the most important thing in the, the world to him. I know he had a, a child. He had um, an ex-wife. 
and he was good to these people, but his work was his focus. A lot of people going back and revisiting his work or discovering him, younger people, for the first time. One of the things when I was reviewing a lot of his stuff online uh, after he passed away was his own show. Lower production values, obviously not something that's getting like, you know, top tier ratings on major networks. But you look at the guests and you go, wow. I mean, he must have been such a comedian's comedian. And I feel like, you know, you look at your phone, Norm Macdonald's calling. Doesn't matter who you are, you answer it. He says, come to my studio. It seems like everybody said yes. And they were there. Yeah, I mean, co comedians loved him. Comedians knew what he was doing. Comedians knew that he was deceptively easy in his comedy, but actually what he was doing was very, very difficult. Um, he was honest to a fault, and that's something that's really important for a comic. Not all comics, but it's important for most comics to be completely honest, and he was honest. Um, he got fired from Saturday Night Live for his blunt honesty. And comedians love honesty. And yet, is it becoming more difficult for that honesty, knowing that, uh, I guess it seems like people feel like they have to look over their shoulder a little bit more. But I guess as you're saying it, that goes against the comic's impulse. Well, um, yeah. This, I mean, this opens up our, our whole world of discussion about what's happening now and right. what has happened over the years. And if you want to start with that now, that's, that's fine with me. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, let's do it because I'm, I'm really interested in the idea that you've teased about how what's going on is nothing new because we've gotten, well, let's start with the, the most high profile one. Dave Chappelle puts that special out on Netflix and no stone unturned. He's making jokes about a whole lot of things that are out there in the news, transgender issues. Uh, you have people at Netflix uh, do protests. A couple people resigned. Uh, critics said, oh, it's the worst thing ever. Don't watch it. But then you look at the Rotten Tomatoes or whatever it is, and it's got a 94% rating. I watched it. I didn't laugh every second, every word, but who does for any act? But I liked it. I thought it was a good act. I thought it was good too. And I had been defending it when it came out. Um, but here's something that I think we have to have a little bit of a historical perspective. There have always, since I got into the business in 1976, there have always been forces um, that have tried to censor comics or tried to stop what they were saying or stop them from uh, performing. And those forces have changed over the years. Um, and what they were upset about has changed over the years. When I hmm. first opened up, um, the big, big, big problem came um, from the Christian right. And all kinds of uh, right-wing Christian organizations were appalled by what I was doing uh, because of uh, two things. One was the language. The language itself was enough to make people um, insanely angry because for the first time on a Canadian stage, um, there was a show that had nothing but four-letter words over and over and over and over <laughs> and over again. Um, and that just drove these people crazy. And the second thing that they hated um, was that there was a kind of hidden agenda. Um, I, I hesitate to call it an agenda because, um, you know, I've never been a political person. I've always been more interested in the psychology of comedy than the politics mm. of comedy. But um, it's certainly, if you sat in um, my club in 1978 and listened to what people were talking about, there was a definite libertarian pro-pleasure uh, agenda that most of them were uh, espousing because in that in those days Toronto was pretty uptight but if you listened to what the comics were saying in those days it was kind of pro-abortion pro-sex uh, pro-prostitution uh, pro-drugs for sure um, and that used to drive the the Christian right crazy now 
that eventually went away because we did not go away. And things started to open up in other areas. And you started to hear the uh, four-letter words on the Sopranos at C on CTV at 10 o'clock at night. So the culture kind of moved a bit towards us, which took a lot of the steam out of any of those arguments. We were no longer the only people who were doing this kind of thing. Ten years later, roughly, I started bringing in, well, I was friends, very good friends. In fact, I was roommates for a while with Sam Kinison. And... Um, I brought him in. I used. To, I started bringing him, bringing him into Yuckx. I'd say 1985 or so, 1986, and um, he was well known enough by then that it created the ire of a lot of feminists. And I had feminist pickets outside my club with signs that said, "You know, feminists for a healthy humor." And I thought, "Hmm, they've obviously not read their Freud." Um, <laughs> And, and, and healthy humor, that sounds about as exciting as a sober orgy. Um, so um, they were, they were using a, a feminist agenda to say, you know, this guy hates women. Oh, boy, he did not hate women. He worshipped women, actually. Uh, but um, that, was, that was happening then, and they were trying to close him down, shut him down. Now we go ahead to what's happening now uh, and to the woke people, and they want to create a better world and start with language, um, which if I were trying to create a better world, that's not really where I would start. I would start with legislation. And then maybe, maybe I would work my way down to something as flimsy and as ephemeral as a comedy performance. So it's not that new for me to experience this kind of, this kind of stuff. One thing I find interesting about those Comedy Central roasts, I guess both the original versions and then the new incarnations that Jeff Ross is doing, is it's not one comedian up there just saying their material out to the audience or, you know, out to the camera recording, but it's everybody there ripping on each other. And then you can kind of see that everybody takes their turn and it's all in good fun and we can be friends afterwards. I've always felt that's a nice dynamic to show people just chill. Like, you know, we can do it and we can take the piss out of each other and it's okay. Well... Um, I would say that uh, um, if there's a problem with the ship, uh, can I use the Chappelle uh, show as an, this Chappelle special as an example? Yeah. Well, you know, to me, the problem with the Chappelle sh uh, um, show, that's Chappelle special, was not that Chappelle came on and said these things, um, making fun of trans people. To me, the problem was the trans people don't have their own special to come back and make fun of Dave Chappelle. Ah. Um, it's an access issue. And one thing I've always been proud of, at least in my own company, is that long before um, you know multiculturalism became this uh, wildly important thing, Yuckx was always multicultural. So you know, in the early days, you had a Greek comic, you had a Jewish comic, you had a lesbian comic, you had a um, a black comic, and they would all take their turn in uh, making fun of the others. And so there was an equality. Um, there was definitely an equality there. And there was something else that I think was even more important is that there was an acknowledgement that we lived in a multicultural society. We right. weren't trying to pretend that the person living next to you wasn't black or the person living next to you wasn't Jewish. Um, you were articulating that. And you didn't see that being articulated in many places. But around the mid-70s, um, some things started to change in this city, at least. And one of them was Yuck Yucks. Another one was the Toronto Sun. And another one was City TV. And all those, th all those, these three institutions were critical in exposing people to the idea that we now live in a culture that is not entirely white. And that white culture is not threatening, but 
kind of boring, um, you know. So um, th- those three things, I think, were important. And all of those of those three things, by the way, come from some different political point of view. You certainly wouldn't say that the Toronto Sun was the same as, as City TV and its politics. Right. But they b- were both committed to showing a different face of Toronto or a number of different faces of Toronto and therefore the country. You know, Mark, when you talk about inclusion and different voices, uh, there's lots of concerns right now, for instance, that people are, are saying too much anti-Muslim uh, comments online and so forth and in general society. And I notice when I look at the lineup for Yuck Yucks, uh, you have a number of Muslim gentlemen who are doing comedy acts right now. And it maybe seems like, you know, is, is, is laughter the best revenge? And, you know, these gentlemen are doing their own acts, poking fun at, I guess, maybe their own culture and at other people's culture. And they're just, they're, you know, they're getting into it. They're going, here's, here's my space, guys, you know, make room well um you should know that eight weeks you should know that eight weeks after um 9-11 i hosted the first uh muslim comedy festival um and boy did i get some uh <laughs> did i get some blowback for that what was the blowback for for providing a forum for for muslim yeah. comedians oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was from if i have to use left versus right that was from right-wing elements uh. um strangely um i got the most positive response from the Jewish community who felt I was building bridges. So, um, but it was very controversial and we had to have extra security in case something happened, nothing happened. But I also had to provide a space upstairs of the club so that the, um, the audience could go pray at a certain, at a certain time. And I certainly never had to do that before or afterwards. That's interesting. I, one thing when I was uh, thinking about all the different comedy scandals or questions we've had recently, I remember about 20 years ago, right after 9-11, didn't you bring in a policy in Yuck Yucks about no 9-11 jokes? No, I never had any kind of a policy whatsoever on any kind of a joke. The, uh, Yuck Yucks has always been an absolute free speech zone. Um, I have never told a comic what to say in terms of content. I may have advised the comic what to say in terms of making their act smoother, uh, you know, better. Um, but it's never been, oh, you can't talk about that. Never would I have done that. In fact, as I remember, I was probably one of the worst people coming up. I wasn't performing at the time, but I was writing all kinds of 9-11 jokes on 9-12. My apologies, because I knew there was a scandal in Canada where a comedian made 9-11 jokes a few days later and the club owner, and I was Googling around the other day, and I thought, was this yuck yucks? You know, what was the situation? So my, It would never have been me. My, I mean, my sincere apologies. That's that's fine. It happened um, somewhere in Canada. I remember that. I wanted to talk, to, talk with you about the issue, you know, of the whole tragedy plus comedy. Uh, equals time thing. Did that play out in 9-11? How is that playing out in other things? Because there are some people, and, and again, I couldn't find the story, but there was at least someone who thought 9-11, uh-uh, we can't talk about it. You would not put any of those sort of rules there? You'd let, you'd let the comic explore? I, I, nothing, nothing. And I'll tell you why. Um, it's because the comics want laughs. The comics are there for the laughs. And if they don't get the laughs, then they will change their material. They'll move it around. They'll retire a joke. They won't try the joke again. Uh, there is censorship in the comedy business. And you know where the censorship should lie? With the customer. If the customer laughs, then it's okay. If the customer doesn't laugh, well, then there's something wrong with the joke or there's something wrong with the timing of the joke. And the comic is the person who has to um, figure out how to how to change it or drop it or, or whatever. But it should never be at the l- level of the club owner to do so. I mean, I'll go further. Um, some people actually think that I should have some kind of, I should be providing some kind of moral leadership um, when it comes to material of all kinds. And let me tell you, the last person you want to provide moral leadership is a nightclub owner. <laughs> 
you know, it's interesting, the idea of testing out material. And I, I've heard those stories about you go to a small club or you're at Yuck Yucks one night and suddenly this surprise guest, this mega famous person comes on. You're like, oh my God, I didn't know this person was going to be here. This is, you know, made my decade to see this. And they're there because they want to try out the new material and they want the sort of quote unquote safe space. And then to your point, they'll find, okay, this didn't get a laugh. I'm taking it off and so forth. But I guess increasingly uh, we have people who are there with the camera or the recording and so forth. The comedian is just test the material that one didn't work but then we gotta go viral with that we gotta crucify them well i don't think it would happen at yuck because we have a policy of no uh. cameras um unless uh the comic gives the okay to me or to somebody who's running the room so um if we see somebody surreptitiously um recording we get them to stop and I heard that anecdote from a friend of mine who in 2019 went to see Louis C.K. at a Yuck Yucks club. So 2017, yeah, that... Louis C.K., he lost many gigs after the stories came out that he improperly exposed himself to women, several women alleged. He lost Excuse a lot. Me, but I must ask you the question, what is a way to properly expose yourself to women? Because I've been trying to figure that out for, for a long time. F fair enough. I'm, I'm trying to do the, <laughs> the neutral preamble as to how the story's been, oh, I'm been sorry. discussed. Okay, I made a you, joke. Know, you know what I'm doing. Whoops. <laughs> but you were one of the first North American comedy club owners to say, Louie, come on down. Here's a safe space for you to do. I know you did a series of shows with him. They were sold out. I remember my friend got tickets. I said, oh, can I join you? He said, no, I could only get one. I said, okay. And then I know the phones were not allowed to be recorded. A lot of people, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? You brought him into great controversy, but it seems like the series of shows was also a great success. Um, yeah, you've summed that up quite well. I mean... I've, I've, first of all, it was kind of a, it was an unusual decision to make. No other club owner um, made that decision with, a, with an exception of two or three in North America. Um, I believe I was the, oh, no, the guy in Winnipeg who runs Rumors, um, which is the preeminent club in Winnipeg, he brought him in as well um, after I brought him in. Uh, but not that long afterwards. I think the booking was done around the same time I, I had. I've always been a big fan of Louis C.K., which made the decision a little easier. It's kind of hard to, uh, it's much harder to fight for free speech when you think that the person has no talent. Uh, but he's worth fighting for. I also thought um, that uh, the case was the one of the weakest Me Too cases of all because um, he didn't touch them. Um, he seduced them. And he actually just seduced them using his uh, importance uh, in a hotel room. Uh, he was on these all these events always happened when he was on uh, when he was on tour and he would have an opening act. The opening act would be a woman. He, he'd say, come on back to my my hotel room. Well, first of all, let me say, um, you know, you have to take some responsibility for your actions. And I would never even as a man, I would never go to somebody's hotel room ever unless I intended to have sex with them. Um, <laughs> always, I tell this to everybody. Just don't go to the hotel room. That's what all-night Starbucks are for if you want to keep talking. But anyway, he went there, um, and he, after, I don't know, some maybe some drinks, maybe some pot, whatever, um, everybody, the two people were relaxed, and he said, here's what I like to do. And there'd be a series of reactions, like, no way I'm leaving, or, hey, that sounds hot, or, okay, it's weird, but okay. And then later on, much later on, they regretted their decision and believed that they did, they made that decision based on him improperly using his position as an important comic to influence their decision. 
Do you think Louis C.K. will make a comeback such that he is comparable to the stature he was before he lost these opportunities? Well, maybe not only because uh, comics always have a kind of uh, hot zone in their careers, and mm. he was certainly having a hot zone in his careers. He'll come back, um, but it won't. It may not be what what it was. That he may not be as white hot. Maybe the venues will be smaller. Um, you know, he played the Air Canada Centre before he played Yuck Yucks, um, and inter the intervening scandal was the reason. So I'm not saying he's going to go back to Yuck Yucks, but he's probably not going to go back to the Air Canada Centre. Maybe he's going to go to, you know, a mid-size um, venue rather than an arena. But something that might change that is his movie. The movie that has never been distributed, right? which I saw. Um, I was lucky to be one of the few people to see it. I think it's called I Love You, Daddy. And um, it deals with a lot of these issues and the issues of male lust that kind of consume him in a very, very intelligent way. And um, I saw it at the at TIFF, and then the scandal hit, like, I don't know, a month and a half later, and he bought back the um, the distribution rights from whoever the distributor was, and he's keeping it in his pocket. This may be his ticket back because it's such a brilliant movie, but it's also controversial. Those things are so bizarre, the sort of the, the hidden product that just is kind of ghosted away. I'd really like to see the new Woody Allen film. It's called Rifkin's Festival or something like I've that. I've seen it. Wallace Shawn Jean. How, how did you see it? I'm willing to part with good money to see it. And you just can't, I can't get it. I can't see it anywhere. A friend of mine um, is Chinese and she has access to all these shadow Chinese Chinese shadow sites and gave me a link and I watched it and it's big in Europe it's making a lot of money in Europe but uh, nobody it's, wants to screen it in North America or even put it online where maybe I can find somewhere to pay thirty four ninety nine for it I don't know but I, I haven't been able to find it yet How, how's the film it's good but it's not as good as the one that came right before it which also had issues um, uh, you can kind of find it on Amazon Prime if you poke around it's called a a uh, rainy day in New York. Right, and um, it's. I think that's the better of the two movies that have not been widely seen. But certainly, Rifkin's uh, festival is is worth seeing, and anything with Wallace Shawn as <laughs> Wallace Shawn as the uh, as the star is always worth seeing. He's so funny. We'll be back with more full comment with Anthony Fury right after this. Mark Breslin, I know a lot of young comedians, they come to you for mentorship. You've helped to assist the careers of many people over the 45 years of Yuck Yuck's history. I, I imagine mentoring young comedians now, though, is a little different than it used to be in terms of, well, we're talking about political correctness and censorship, and I'm sure a lot of them have, have some anxieties about all of this. I mean, do they? Do they express it to you? And, and how do you respond to that? Well, um, I once saw um, Bernardo Bertolucci give a lecture and somebody asked him the question of, about censorship. And he said, censorship has never been a problem for me. The problem is when an artist self-censors. Ah. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm, that, that lecture must have been 50 years ago. But it, all, <laughs> it just stayed with me, what he said. And I think it's absolutely true. Um, you also have to figure, I mean, when we're talking about censorship, 
um, of comedians that uh, different venues are, what's appropriate for one venue may not be appropriate for another venue. And I'll give you an example. Um, Yuck Yucks is a completely free speech zone. You could say anything. You will not get fired. If the audience laughs, that's great. If it's not enlightened, if they're not enlightened uh, and they laugh at a very unenlightened joke, well, I might sit at the back going, no, that's too bad. They'd like that. But it's their prerogative to like it. Um, but um, at the coffee, at the water cooler the next day, um, you're not supposed to tell that joke because hmm. that's not an appropriate place for it. The framing is different. Plus, you're not a comic. You probably won't even tell it right. And I can understand why you're not supposed to do that at the dinner, these jokes at the dinner table. Um, long ago, on, I used to go to Friday night dinners at a friend's house when I was a teenager. And I was kind of outrageous <laughs> all the way through. And I would do this outrageous, these outrageous riffs at the dinner table. And my friend's mother, who was extremely proper, would say, Mark, there are certain things we don't talk about at the dinner table. And of course, I realized my entire career has been telling those things you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table. So it's all about where you, where you tell it. Yuck Yucks is a very lucky sort of situation for me because I'm playing on a small enough scale that I really don't have to worry about um, too much uh, blowback from people. Uh, first of all, everybody knows what Yuck Yucks is all about. If you went and you asked people in the street, Yuck Yucks, uh, do they do um, nice comedy there? They'd probably say, oh, no, it's wild. It's, they'll say anything. Everybody knows this. So the marketplace becomes self-selective, and the people who come know what they're getting. In fact, they want that. Here's another little tidbit for you. Uh, Just for Laughs has their traditional nasty show, uh, which isn't really all that nasty. But it's a nasty show compared to the other stuff that they have. Right. That show sells out faster than any other show. <laughs> they do eight of them um, in a mid-sized venue to start off the festival. And that is the hottest ticket. So this is kind of what people want many times. Not everybody. But this is, there, are, there are venues now in this city and probably in other cities where um, it is censored. Um, at least it's not, at least the, the comics themselves censor it. They know that they're going to a room which uh, attracts a very downtown, quote unquote, woke audience um, that is expecting a certain kind of um, politeness in the comedy, uh, uh, tastefulness. They don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, that those things are really important to them. And that will attract that kind of audience. And that will attract that kind of comic. Yuck Yucks doesn't do that. Um, when you get bigger than a comedy club, then you start getting into the problem of you're probably existing with some level of corporate sponsorship. Hmm. You're probably existing with some level of governmental largesse, and um, you don't want to threaten that because they're answerable to to people. I'm not answerable to anybody except my customers. How have you been able uh, to do this for 45 years successfully? It's 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 amazing, really. It's a triumph. Well, thank you. But part of it is that I'm not as I'm not too big. If I got bigger um, and, you know, if I had a thousand seat venue, then I, I would need all kinds of sponsorship and, um, you know, government assistance and the things that everybody gets. And once you do that, then, um, you know, you're under the threat of, of having that, that stuff withdrawn. Um, this is why Netflix took Louis C.K.'s uh, specials off. They weren't, I, I assure you, they did not, they were not personally offended by what what. What he had, had done, they're worried about boycotts and they're worried about social media. When I brought in Louis C.K., 
I had some pretty negative social media, but incidentally, it ran about 100 to 1 in favor of what I did. But even if it hadn't, what could they do? What could they do? Speaking of business struggles, Mark, COVID-19, yeah. the pandemic, the government, of course, said you got to shut down. And a lot of us understood why back during that first wave. And then there was a lot of disagreement as to whether or not things should have uh, been shut in subsequent waves. When should they reopen and so on? Uh, how was the shutdown for you at Yuck Yucks? And, and how were you feeling? How were the comics feeling? How was the audience feeling about let's just get back in a room and, and, and laugh together? Well, the past 18 months were among the most horrible of my life. And I went to high school. <laughs> so it was it was pretty awful. I mean, um, from a psychological and spiritual point of view, yeah. um, I guess you've read King Lear. You know what happens when a king loses his kingdom. It's not yeah. pretty. And um, I spent an awful lot of time in the house just staring into space because I couldn't do anything else. Yeah. It was a miserable, miserable, miserable time for me. Um, and for the comics, they had they lost their income, and they even maybe more important, they lost their ability to connect with the world because right. comics um this is how they connect with the world many of them don't have conventional or traditional personal lives um, they live for their comedy and for the lifestyle that goes with comedy and it's gone it's all gone now it's come back and since they took away the um capacity restrictions now uh things feel like they're getting back to normal slowly but nothing makes me happier than going to my club on a saturday night here in toronto um, and seeing 225 people sitting in the room laughing their heads off a lot better than when the capacity limits were limited to 90 in a 300 seat room and you had to space the tables out well you know comedy uh, works best when you jam people in uh, because laughter is catching right laugh and the world laughs with you cry and you cry alone so uh, it's, it's been so much better now. We're open in all our clubs across the country, um, but we're not necessarily back to the levels of audience, audiences that we were pre-pandemic. That will happen, I figure, in the next three, four months maybe, as people think, well, I, I guess I have to go inside. Um, it's cold out. Um, you know, that's a problem they don't have in the Miami clubs. So... I want to get your thoughts on another issue that was in the news recently, a Quebec comedian going all the way to the Supreme Court to say, I can make jokes about whatever I want, offensive stuff. I can even make jokes about a disabled youth who is something of a celebrity in Quebec culture. Mike Ward had been making jokes. This is 10 years ago about a, a young boy who had a disability who would do a lot of uh, public singing at various events with high profile figures in front of the Pope. And I guess he was held as a, a major figure in Francophone culture in Canada. And Mike Ward said, I want to uh, deflate some of these various characters this young man was among it uh his family took mike ward to the quebec human rights tribunals they awarded uh him forty thousand dollars him and his family in damages mike ward said i don't want to pay that went to the court and the supreme court did rule recently yeah you can make these offensive jokes but it was close it was a close split decision what did you think about that mark and what were folks in the comedy world saying well obviously everybody in the comedy world was pro mike ward um, myself included i met with mike um, to offer my support um, somewhere during this process. Um, you know, the, it's an icky joke um, because he's a kid. But the joke wasn't really about him. The joke was about fame and how fame touches people and how, how people how react to people's fame, perhaps incorrectly. Um, and uh, because Mike Ward happens to be quite wealthy, um, he's a wealthy comedian because in Quebec... He is a megastar. 
he could sell out Place des Arts, 2,800 seats, probably for a week. That would not be unusual for Mike Ward. Um, so he had enough money to be able to um, shoulder the legal fees um, to go all the way through the Supreme Court, to get the Supreme Court to say, well, you know, maybe what you said was pretty ugly, but you still have the right to say it, which I think goes back to Voltaire, doesn't it? I may not agree with them about what the man says, but I defend his right to say it. Where are these things headed? Is there, because what you've said basically is these things shall pass too, because you give examples from decades before. I've also seen different cultural shifts. It was interesting uh, to read Seth Rogen kind of renouncing his earlier work. And I was like, what's that about? And we went and we, we rewatched Superbad the other month, his sort of first big breakout movie from 2007. Man, that's a funny movie. I think it's pretty much his best movie. It's, it's one of my favorite, uh, favorite movies of his. It is it's so great. He has renounced it, though, and maybe he's, I, I don't know, is he indicative of a sort of new culture of, I know he's not a stand-up, or at least isn't anymore. Like, what's what's going on? What's what's the future of all of this? Well, I'm not sure he really believes what he said. I think mm. he wants to work. Um, it's really hard to get a movie going because somebody has to trust you enough to give you, you know, $20 million or more. Right. $20 million is on the low end. And, um, you know, this is the mood that's in the uh, in the air right now. Um so I'm not sure I, I necessarily believe him when he renounces it. And that's such a strong word. I mean, if anything, he could say, well, some of those jokes that we put in that movie, I'm not sure I would do those jokes now. That would seem to be sort of a, a more balanced reaction. But I mean, there are jokes I told in 1978 that I wouldn't tell now. <laughs> right. But by all means, go ahead. You have the floor. No, no, no. I'm not going to tell those jokes. But there, 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 it was an innocent time. And, and you know, the fact that it, people go, would get uh, maybe get offended or hurt um, didn't really matter to me. I mean, in some ways, it's sort of even better. But we had but the important thing was it was there was access and whatever I might have said, the next person could go on and completely denounce it. But I want to make one thing very clear. And it's this and this guides me. This is my lodestar. The censorship of, com- of artists in general and comedians in, in specific um, is never, ever the answer. Ever. That's never the answer. What might be the answer is a more, well, what I believe is, is a good thing, is a more critical reading of popular culture so that when you're uh, ingesting it, that you don't just take it as face value, that you maybe question it a little bit. Um, that you wonder why people are saying this or that, and and it leads to a discussion, and the discussion is enlightening. Uh, but shutting down the debate, I have no idea why anybody would want to do that. These are artists; they're exploring these spaces between the official version and the way people actually think and behave. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> no, it's a good soapbox. It's good. Uh... Well, I have something. Well, I have something else to contribute to you. Please. That I, I don't think I've ever said publicly because um, I've just started to. I've just started to formulate this as an idea, okay. and the idea doesn't make me feel or look very good. Um, and I'll I'll show you why. For the past forty-five years, I have been telling anybody who will listen, especially my family, um, that what I do is really significant. It has all kinds of important, important uh, values that I'm imparting to the general public. And um, I, look, I won a, uh, an Order of Canada because of this. I'm, I'm really important. Comedy is really important 
for this. And now, as I think about it, I'm starting to think the opposite. That comedy's value is precisely in its ephemerality. That it doesn't change people's minds at all. That people come into a comedy club uh, with basically the attitudes and biases and prejudices that they, they have. They watch a comic. The comic might take them on a journey away from what they believe. But then nine minutes later, when the routine is over and another comic starts, they've forgotten it already. And they're back to what they originally believed. Now, the reason I, I say this is because I've had this happen a number of times where comics will come to me and they, they'll tell me they got a festival. And on a festival, you might have, you know, 10 comics on in a big venue at any given time. This could be Just for Laughs. This could be the Winnipeg Festival. This could be the Vancouver Festival. This could be any number of festivals. So they, the festival will book a comic known for their wokeness. The comic will get on stage. They will do the most woke jokes imaginable, and the audience will be going crazy. They'll love it. They'll be applauding. They'll be laughing. And the comic will be feeling amazing because not only is it they, are they making them laugh, but they're also nudging them to a political and social position that they believe in. They walk off the stage feeling like they're 10 feet tall. Then the next comic goes on. The next comic has the exact opposite political and social view. <laughs> And they get huge laughs, applause breaks. They're right with them, completely contradicting what the, the reaction to the first comic. And the first comic says, what am I, what, 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 what's going on here? And the truth is, it's comedy. It's not really to be taken seriously. It's a series of what ifs. And if a comic is good, he can get you, he or she can get you to uh, go with them on whatever their beliefs might be. And then it's over. They go back to whatever positions they had when they walked in. It's, it's ephemeral. It's weightless. And I hate to say this because it kind of undercuts my life's work. But I think it's true. But we keep coming back. Meaning? The audience. We keep going to those Netflix specials. We keep going to Netflix. It's yes, permanently course. ephemeral. <clears throat> of course. But we watch them. But we don't take... We don't take comics seriously. You know, Woody Allen once said, as long as you're doing comedy, you'll never sit at the grown-ups table. And, uh, of course, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that's, that's a quote that can come and bite him on the, on the ass. But um, it's just not, it's, it's wonderfully not taken seriously. It's just not that important. It's, it's a trifle. It's a distraction. It's a distraction. Who would you say, because you've got your finger on the pulse of the next yeah. big thing, who do we yes. take seriously in terms of who do we watch? Who do we look for? Who are you excited about right now these days? Well, um, hard to say, hard to say, hard, hard to say. I'm, I'm very excited about, of course, Canadian comedians, because those are the ones I work with directly. Um, I, it's, uh, it's, it's a good opportunity for me to criticize Hannah Gatsby, though. Go for it. All right. So I watched the, the special, the, the Nanette special, and I, it, there's two parts to it, really. The first part is her um, being funny, and um, she's reasonably funny, but then she goes into her um, rant against comedy and pretty much against male comics, and she raises a fabulous issue, but I have to tell you, I disagree with her conclusions. Her fabulous issue that she raises, and so succinctly, is 
what is the worth of a fantastic artist if that fantastic artist treats people horribly? Which is more important, the work that they leave or the people whose lives they lay waste to? And as um, an example, she uses Picasso. And Picasso is a good example because Picasso... Um, no big feminist. Most... Glad he's Sorry? not around for me too. He should be happy about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Picasso um, had, a, had a very... Um, Picasso did not treat women well. Let's just say that, including the 17-year-old that eventually committed suicide um, after uh, having a long affair with him. Uh, uh, but he did do Guernica. And if you've stood in front of Guernica, you just don't think of how badly he treated individual people. What you think of is, this is the most moving picture against the horrors of war that I have ever seen. And everyone should see this. But to Hannah Gatsby, you should avoid it. So I, I love the fact that she brought this up because this is a, an issue that comes up again and again and again and again. And it comes up in Me, in me Too comedy issues as well. Um, and that is sometimes, or quite often, horrible people make great art. And it's very hard to find, in fact, people who um, make great art that aren't horrible on some level. And I'm not sure wh exactly why, because I'm not a psychoanalyst, but um, if you want to be consistent and you think that, you know, um, Woody Allen went, uh, went after uh, relationships with girls who were just underage, well, you better not listen. You better throw out your whole record collection because you know the Beatles did that too. I assure you the Beatles were having um, affairs with girls in Hamburg that were way underage. Um, uh, Led Zeppelin, no, throw those records out as well. Throw out the Rolling Stones. They all did this. And so that's that. There's, there's an entire category gone. T.S. Eliot is my favorite, con uh, my favorite poet of all time. He was also a notorious anti-Semite. And yet, and I'm Jewish, and yet... A uh, year can't pass be, be, uh, without me reading the rereading the wasteland and and proof rock and thinking that this is genius. So I'm able to compartmentalize what a person's personal life is and what their personal beliefs are uh, from their actual work. Uh, Hannah Gatsby is suggesting no, you shouldn't do that. So um, I, I I don't know. Somebody told me once they thought that men have it easier in terms of com compartmentalization, that that's kind of more of a male brain thing. That may be true. I don't know. But I can do it, and I do it every day. Every day. You know, I've always thought we had it easy, the fact that Adolf Hitler, who was a painter, wasn't that great of a painter. Wouldn't it be rough if he was actually, like, the best painter of the 20th century? And you're like, uh, how do we talk about this right now? It would be very, it would be very <laughs> difficult. Um, and luckily, John Wayne Gacy, um, you know, the serial murder drew pictures of clowns. Um, and you know that there are people who collect those pictures. They're very much in demand. Oh, that's interesting. A little yeah, odd. Yeah, they're very much in demand. They, they fetch high prices. Wow. Not Warhol prices, but, but five-figure prices. I'm saving up for mine. Mark, I know you give a lot of advice, <laughs> as we said to, to comedians, what advice would you give to audience members, to regular folks who are seeing these schisms or whatever you want to call it in comedy, and they're saying, look, I just want to enjoy it. I just want to have the laughs. Well, first of all, if you're thinking of going out to a night, a night of comedy, 
the internet is a wonderful thing. Um, you can research the comic that's being advertised, and I never understand why people don't. Certainly, you wouldn't go to a um, a Cineplex and say, "What's playing?" Oh, okay, that looks. What's the next? What's the next showtime of whatever you have? You would research what movie you want to see, and you would decide you like the people in it, you like the you like the director, you like what it's about. So you should do the same thing with comedy. I think people should be astute consumers, and it's easy to be an astute consumer these days. The second thing is, um, I admit that one thing I've always wanted um, was to, to make people less sensitive. It's always been um, a goal of mine, even before all of this Me Too thing started to happen. Um, I was always bullied and picked on and all these things when I was a kid because I'm really small and I was Jewish in a non-Jewish environment. Um, and I just got tougher. And there's almost nothing that can offend me now nothing that anybody could say to me that would ever offend me personally and nothing that anybody could say that it would offend me theoretically, which is why I guess I'm the right person for my job. But I would like to see people um, not made of glass because it feels like they're made of glass and they shatter much too easily. The right person for the job. Mark Breslin, this has been a fantastic conversation, uh, really informative stuff. Thanks so much for joining us today. You're, you're welcome. All the best. Thanks. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru, with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.